0: I've entitled this study The Run Up, Run Up to Armageddon. If we followed only the Revelation narrative, we could be forgiven for thinking that after Antichrist establishes his hold on the entire world at the midpoint of the tribulation, his only conflict, his only war, is the one with Christ at Armageddon. And in that we would be mistaken. We're at an opportune juncture in this study before we examine the last two bowl judgments to set aside Revelation for a while and return to the prophecies of Ezekiel, but especially Daniel to establish more of the details of future world history. The events we will be examining in this session do not, do not fall right where we left off in Revelation 16. We'll be backing up a little in the narrative to get a proper perspective on the events. Most, however, they're in the neighborhood Most do occur during the second half of the tribulation, when the beast, Antichrist, is in power. But let's look first at a key passage that some say occurs during the tribulation, but others, including this teacher, say occurs much later. That will be in Ezekiel, but let's begin in Revelation Please turn to Revelation chapter 20. The end of chapter 19 records the dramatic conclusion to Armageddon. The beast and false prophet are seized and thrown alive into the lake of fire, with the rest of their army being killed by the words spoken by Christ Jesus that sword. Note how this chapter ends in verse 21. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. We'll be referring to this again in a moment. As I've mentioned before, it is remarkable that the seven-year tribulation is discussed over 14 chapters, seven years discussed over 14 chapters, chapter 6 to chapter 19, while the 1,000-year millennium is briefly mentioned in just seven verses. Curious, but there it is. From Revelation, we learn that it is war that bookends the millennium. Christ's victory at Armageddon serves as the prelude for the millennium, and the postlude is supplied by the just-released Satan and his armies surrounding, quote, the beloved city. <clears throat> now, let's read Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9. And when the thousand... And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So please note that within a span of just 12 verses in the Revelation, we have Armageddon, the millennium, thousand years, and the final war against Messiah and the Jews before God convenes his great white throne judgment. And I always put in these wars, these two wars on either end of the Millennium, I always put in scare quotes because they're not wars. They are not combatants fighting each other. They are armies gathered. Jesus shows up. Done. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. Not everyone agrees, of course, but my position, certainly not unique, is that Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe this final post-millennial conflict. We'll look further into this when we reach the end of the millennium in this study, but for the moment... I'd like to point out my reasons for placing this not earlier in the first half of the tribulation, which is John Walvoord's position, not describing Armageddon itself, some say it's Armageddon itself, and not just before the millennium as Alexander, but later after the millennium. Now, I'm going to pronounce these words. I always unlike our pastor who just rattles them off and tries to slide it past you. I don't blame him in that passage this morning. That was truck full. Uh, two of my Bible programs will pronounce them for you, so I always go with them, so I don't mean to offend. Kim, by pronouncing them differently than you did, we all grew up saying Gog and Magog. Actually, it's Gog and Magog. "magog." I always, anyway. Like it's important, right? <clears throat> First is the Gog and Magog connection, which is tossed into Revelation 28 almost as an afterthought chapter 20, verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The Ezekiel chapters are all about Gog and the land of Magog. That is, Gog, the chief prince or ruler of a geographical area, Meshech and Tubal, in the region of Magog. So that's one reason to place it there. Second, the war described by Ezekiel takes place during a time of peace and security for Israel. Look at Ezekiel 38, verses 14 to 16. Therefore prophesy, son of man, And say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before your eyes, O Gog. Although, as per Walvert, the first half of the tribulation will be relatively secure for Israel. They have this covenant with Antichrist. He will break it. But but during the first half, he does have an agreement with them them to let them worship in the temple. But the millennium will be far more peaceful and secure for Israel. And for, of course, for a longer period of time. Third... And final, some claim that the Ezekiel chapters speak of Armageddon because of the connection with, quote, every kind of bird and every beast of the field being invited to come feast on all the dead bodies, which is indeed mentioned as part of the aftermath of Armageddon. Revelation 19, 17 to 18, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both freemen and slaves and small and great. Yet note that the Revelation passage makes no mention of other beasts, only birds. I see no problem with the fact that the post-millennial war in the Revelation makes no mention of the birds or animals. Some say it disqualifies it because there's no mention of it. Because this would be the natural conclusion to the slaughter of any such battle. We're talking about millions of dead soldiers like that battlefield covered with dead soldiers. Of course, the animals are going to come out to play, you bet. So I would place the Ezekiel-described conflict, chapters 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog narrative immediately after the millennium when Satan is released from his thousand-year confinement to rally his troops for his one last shot against Israel. Now, please turn to Daniel 11, and this is where we'll be for a while. The way of the beast, the ways of the beast, plural. Daniel 11, verses 1 to 35 is all historical. Prophecy. By which I mean that it is future to Daniel, it's prophecy for him, being told to him by a heavenly messenger, but past recorded history to us. Daniel 11, verses 1 to 35. That is very accurate, prophetic for Daniel, but recorded history us, It is a prophecy intricately detailed and accurate with known historical accounts, primarily about, what's his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, which so many scholars want to lay over all of Revelation, all of Daniel, all of Ezekiel. It's, well, it's all about it. Antiochus Epiphanes. It's very detailed and accurate from known historical accounts, but as such does not concern this present study. For from our perspective, it's already been fulfilled in the past. Done. Verse 35, however, segues into eschatological prophecy. Prophecy. Let's read Daniel 11, verses 34 to 35. (laughs) When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them in flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Our, our key there is make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. That gives us a clue that, oh, we're now gonna be in the end times. This portion of scripture Specifically, Daniel 11, 1 to 12, 4, beautifully illustrates why we can trust God's word regarding the last things. As the Lord God said in the negative in Deuteronomy 18, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Deuteronomy 18:21 to22a. Even skeptics agree that the historical prophecy of Daniel 11, 1 to 35 that part that was fulfilled centuries in the past is so incredibly accurate that many insist that it is not prophecy at all. It had to be written after the fact. But it was not, of course. That's why we can treat the eschatological prophecies in God's Word as reliably true, because His prophecies of earlier events were indeed fulfilled right down to the I'm just perfect from verse 36 to chapter 12 verse 3 the time frame shifts to the second half of the tribulation the great tribulation how do we know this two reasons First, because it depicts military movement and conflict that could only occur after the beast is at the height of his power. It has to be after that midpoint where he reneges on his covenant with the Jews, takes over the temple, erects a a statue either of himself or of his God that we're going to be introduced to in a moment, and forces people to worship it. It had to take place after that. But second, more importantly, does not occur anywhere else in recorded history, and especially not with the Antiochus Epiphanes narrative, that so many want to jam into this. It doesn't fit. Now, there's going to be a few tidbits as we begin to look at this passage, but for the most part, and for the critical part, it has nothing to do with Epiphanes, and and anyone trying to... do that, are just standing on their head. It just doesn't work. <clears throat> the known facts about Antiochus' epiphanies, which verses 1 to 35 are all about, have no resemblance to Daniel 36 and following. So let's read Daniel 11 36 to 37. then the king shall do according to his own will he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done he shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall exalt himself above them all Now, admittedly, most of you probably caught it, that portion does fit Antiochus Epiphanes. That describes what he did. But as the passage proceeds, it veers off dramatically from what we know of him, what history knows of him. Verse 36 Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. We have, whoa, hello, sorry about that, my fault. We have read of this in verse 36 in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. But we do read something new in the next verse. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Some conclude from the phrase, no regard for the desire of women that the beast will either be homosexual or asexual. Just won't care. But there's a better interpretation. The Hebrew used by Daniel for desire, hemdat, is in a construct that means not a desire for women, that is, his desire for women, but that which is desired by Women. That is, the desire of women for something. And probably points to the universal desire of all Jewish women of the time that they would be so privileged as to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. As Walverd summarizes, in other words... The beast would disregard the gods of the past as well as the promised Son of God who is to come from heaven. He would disregard the desire of women to give birth to the Messiah. We don't need no stinking Messiah. That's the idea. We don't need the old gods. We don't need those. We don't need this new one coming from heaven. Now, verses 38 to 39. Let's read those. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. The the God of forces in the King James Version is better translated a God of fortresses. Not the God of forces, but a God of fortresses. The Hebrew, mazim, means places of safety, protection, or refuge. Not the troops in them, but the place where they are. Nonetheless, this paints a picture of the beast as one who places his trust not just in himself, but in military might. I'm presently reading a biography of Catherine the Great of Russia, and her weird little pipsqueak husband who she was forced to marry neither of them love each other had spent any time together they never shared a bed they never did this disaster he loves to play soldier that's all he does with his time even as a young man all he does is spend his time with his servants marching around dressing in uniforms just everything perfect that's like a little toy soldier well that's kind of what the beast is like here It's all about war. It's all about soldiering. The power to make war. Remember how Antichrist was first portrayed in the Revelation. Maybe you don't. Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 2. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. In Revelation. In the, in the very first seal, we are shown a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, and to conquer. His crown will be a crown not of royalty, but of victory, Stephanos. And his purpose from the beginning will be to conquer the nations, to conquer religion, to conquer society itself, to conquer, to beat down. The venerable commentary by Kyle and Delish has it this way. The God of fortresses is the personification of war. And the thought is this. He will regard no other God but only War, the taking of fortresses, he will make his God, and he will worship this God above all as the means of his gaining the world power. Of this God, war as the object of deification, it might be said that his fathers knew nothing because no other king had made war his religion his God to whom he offered up in sacrifice all gold, silver, precious stones, jewels. A God whom his fathers did not know does not necessarily label the beast as a Jew, as some commentaries like to say. It just means that his God is not a traditional God worshiped by those who came before him, not Zeus, not Mars, not Jupiter, not Yahweh. Instead, it will be a brand new God of warfare. Verse 39 continues, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. In our vernacular, the word foreign implies someone or something that lives elsewhere, that is, foreign to us, but not foreign to those where it usually dwells. But the word nikar here can also mean just strange, as the King James Version has it. This is a strange god. Certainly his god will be very strange. The term God here is used loosely. It is the personification of a philosophy. Put simply, the beast will be wholly devoted to war. Now, world war. Everything so far has been background for what inevitably follows. Now, Zeb, we could have the chart. Thank you very much. Number 18. If one worships war, there can be no surprise at what comes next. War. A world war. Now, I take issue with Walvert, who calls this the last world war. Because it really isn't. There will be Armageddon itself, which will draw troops from all over. This is not what we're talking about today. It's not Armageddon. It's the run-up to it. As well as the war at the end of the millennium. Supposedly, in some, by some interpretation, 200 million soldiers. No wonder the birds are, birds are feasting. This is why I've named this the last reciprocal war. That is, the last war in which two combatives come at each other and slug it out until there is a victor. This is the last war of that type. So you might want to reference Chart 18. And let's read Daniel, the, verses 40 to 41 of Daniel 11, please. And at the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter lands, overthrow them, and pass through. And he will also enter the beautiful land and many countries Will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand: Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Okay, so verse 40 begins this war. Antichrist doesn't start it. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. These verses, verses 40 to 45, seem to reinforce my position that the seat of the beast powers Israel, specifically Jerusalem. For without stating it outright, this whole narrative is Israel-centric. A king from the south approaches, probably Egypt, but also including some other nations of North, of the North, North Africa. A second king approaches from the North, quite possibly Russia. We don't know for sure. With some neighboring nations. Later, there will be rumors from the East. Rumors from the East, rumors from the North. No doubt of impending invasion. What lies at the focal point of these threats? Israel. It's all about Israel. The phrase, at the end time, or at the time of the end, depending on your translation, nails the setting for this prophecy. This means, for one thing, that we need not waste time conjecturing about who this king of the south or the king of the north is. In the lifetimes of most people in this room, We've, we've seen nations change hands or be renamed, be reshaped by war or treaty, borders shifted or wiped out. And this passage speaks of nations in place well beyond today, at a minimum seven years beyond today, but probably more. Who knows? The word translated collide in the NASB, it's yetnagak, means to Quote, but with the horns to push against, even to gore. It's a term of warfare drawn from the natural world. The way two big, big horn sheep go at each other. And bang, there. Have you, see, have you ever seen that? That's amazing. They rear up. It, it, it's, like they, it's like they rehearsed it. They do it, I mean, just together. Bam. Their heads, their heads are literally, the structure of their heads are built for that, that they can take it. They've got shock absorbers in their heads. Well, that's what this word means. <clears throat> this is not coincidental imagery. T- please turn back to chapter 8 in uh, Daniel. Daniel 8. <clears throat> Daniel 8, verse 4. I saw the ram butting westward, northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So so there, in a different prophecy, the same word is used, and in the NASB at least, uses the word butting. This is how the assault from the south is described. Whereas the advance from the north, the word translated storm, saar, means to sweep or whirl away as in a whirlwind. Parenthetically, the prophetic visions of chapter 8 that we just read from are similar to chapter 11, in that the first portion, verses 1 to 22, is historical, while the second portion, 23 to 26, foreshadows the beast of the end times. When we blend into this narrative, what we know from Revelation and Daniel chapter 9, we can easily see these two threats from north and south as signs of active rebellion against the world dictator, Antichrist. We all have a tendency to see history, anything anything prior to our births. Linda and I were watching a movie last night made in 2000. And I afterwards I turned to her and I said, "2000, doesn't that sound like it just yesterday? 2000. It was 23 years ago." Anyway, I digress. We all have a tendency to see history, and even, as here, future history, in simple, uncluttered terms. We see it in basic black and white. This happened, this happened, period. Rather than the shades of gray, it really is. Just because the beast has proclaimed himself ruler of the world, even God... And even if the majority welcome him in that position, there still can be disgruntled leaders that, even if technically in the Beast Coalition, will actively rebel against him. Of course, that's how it's been played out all through history. I mean, who who does the king fear the most? His eldest son. Who often gets killed by the king? His eldest son, because he's threatening his throne. Once again, in verse 40, ambiguous pronouns causes problems. That is, who is the he in, quote, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through, end quote. Does this refer to the king of the south, the king of the north? or the word world ruler. Needless to say, opinions vary. I'm going to record that, and I'll just press a button. Opinions vary. I side here with Walvard that the he throughout verses 40 to 45 is the king who will do as he pleases from verse 36. That is Antichrist, the beast. So the he throughout this passage My position is that it's Antichrist. And Walverd quotes H.C. Leupold, who agrees. He writes this, The variety of the resources that are to be employed against the Antichrist indicate how great his power must be at the latter end. Chariots, horsemen, and many ships. But the Antichrist will not be slow to repel the attack. He himself shall, quote, Come into these lands, that is, the lands of those who have assailed him, and shall sweep along and pass through. So what this means is that Antichrist is not just defending his home base. He's not just sitting there fending them off. He's fighting back, he's sweeping through them, and even beyond, which is what I tried to show with the white arrows. He's not just defending himself, he's taking a proactive response. As always, there are other positions, but in this passage, assigning the he to either of the other kings dramatically changes the interpretation of the preceding verses. I believe it's assigning it to Antichrist makes the most sense in the following verses. Thus, we conclude that the beast will successfully repel these insurrectionists to the extent that his forces will move into their own lands and beyond. The movement of forces in this war is represented in chart 18, obviously. A map of the Middle East with the nations in place today, but what they will be when this actually happens, who knows? We have no idea. The text offers few specifics. So the flow of combat simply portrays the general movement from the various directions. What is shown is the overwhelming response from the beast. More than just defending his base of power, he energetically fights back, even moving deeper into the territory of the insurrectionists. Chart 19, could we have that, Zeb, please? And then you can just leave that up, thank you. Chart 19 shows essentially the same information but just in a timeline format. I just changed the format to to match our other charts with key succeeding events concluding. Those I just, you know, they really don't pertain to what's going on here, but I just left them to say, okay, here's where it happens. Verses 41 to 42, he will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Adam, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Again, there are varied interpretations of this enigmatic passage, which time does not permit us to discuss. The prominent variant interpretation is that Antichrist is the king of the north. King of the north, Antichrist, synonymous. Thus, his entering of the beautiful land in verse 41, that is, Israel, doesn't mean it's beautiful, it means it's beautiful in God's eyes, is one of conquest as a foe. If that were the case, however, I mean, set aside the fact that we've just been told that Antichrist sweeps north and overwhelms these guys who are attacking him. So if he's the king of the north, you know, you get really mixed up here and you start chasing your tail trying to explain this. So if that were the case, how does one reconcile that if he if Antichrist is the king of the north, how do you reconcile that with his coming into the temple earlier at the midpoint of the tribulation to him declare himself equal with God? Then later he comes as a foe into Israel that Doesn't track very well. I believe verse 41 describes the beast returning to his home base, as it were, or returning for the first time with all his armies in tow. He's coming home after the warfare. Reading these two verses, it is clear that we're not being told the whole story. Not surprising since it's enigmatic prophecy, not the account of an historical conflict. But we see the beast having success. He will enter the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. He'll stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. So Antichrist will take it over. But, as well, he has failure. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Adam, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. This last group of lands, Adam, Moab, and Ammon, is today within the precincts of the nation of Jordan and located roughly east and southeast of today's Israel. On our map, Ammon is shown as... A. Oh, the map's not there anymore. That's right. A-M-M-A-N. Same thing. Verses 43 to 44. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. So that tracks, he goes down in Egypt, takes over, takes all the good stuff. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Aha, they come at him. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. In other words, he sees those. It's not just rumors, it's threatening rumors. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. I don't want to read too much into this, but I'll do it anyway. One gets the impression that the beast, Antichrist, may be getting desperate at this point. Does anyone else hear that in this narrative? He takes over Egypt and takes possession of all its riches, but at the same time, Egypt's western neighbor, Libya, and Ethiopia, southeast of Egypt, are surging after him, not wanting him to get away with this. On top of this, the beast hears new disturbing rumors from the east, which has, the east has thus far stayed out of the conflict. And the North, which he had supposedly neutralized earlier, he thought he took care of that, but now he's hearing rumors that they're coming at him again. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. This is where I think he's getting desperate. I'm no military tactician. I was a musician, for crying out loud. But it seems to me that this is not a good sign for the embattled Antichrist. He responds, he responds now, not with calm calculation, a cool head, but raging fury, a burning anger. That is, he's reacting emotionally rather than sensibly or logically. He may be flailing about at this stage, but then he is at near the end of his run. It's coming up to meet him. Remember, there's good reason to believe that concomitant with this world war are most of the Lord's bowls of wrath being poured out upon the earth. What a mess. I mean, if you can harken back to three weeks ago when we went through these things, it's horrible what's going on geographically. Physically on the world. And then there's world war going on. What a wreck. Verse 45, finally. Verses 40 to to 44 cannot be set with any degree of specificity. Yeah, I know the word. Specificity in the timeline of the great tribulation these events certainly fall somewhere during the second half of the tribulation and probably closer to the end than the middle. But more than that, we can't say. We we also cannot speak of the duration of this war. Three and a half years? Two? One? We don't know. But with verse 45, we realize we're getting very near the end. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The first part of this verse points us toward Armageddon. Antichrist will set up his royal residence, his military headquarters, quote, between the seas and the beautiful mountain, Interpreted by most to mean between the Mediterranean and the dead or salt sea. The reference to the beautiful holy mountain is to Jerusalem. Look at the inset map. I'm sorry, Zeb, I lied. Could we have it back? I'm sorry. Take it out of my pay, okay? Take a look at the inset map at the upper right-hand corner. You'll see it better in your your hand. To the left is the Mediterranean. At the bottom of the map is the Salt Sea, with Jerusalem circled next to it. Megiddo is circled above, just below the valley of Esdralon. Let's have John Walvard help us out here. Geographically, he writes, Armageddon relates to the Mount of Megiddo, located adjacent to the plain of Megiddo to the west and the large plain of Esdralon to the northeast. Megiddo is the Hebrew word corresponding to the Greek word Armageddon. This area was the scene of many of the great battles of the Old Testament, such as that of Barak and the Canaanites in Judges 4 and the victory of Gideon over the Midianites in Judges 7. Here also occurred the deaths of Saul and Josiah. The area, though it is a large one, is not sufficient for the armies of all the world, though the valley of Esdraelon is 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. What this scripture seems to indicate is that this area is the central point for the military conflict which ensues. Actually, the armies are deployed over a 200-mile area up and down from this central location. That's John Walvard. So while... So he sets up his palace, his power's center of power for war near Megiddo. But that is not where the war takes place, the the Armageddon. Armageddon will really cover the whole region, as far as number of men. Now, again, we're not talking about years and years, even months or weeks of battle. We're talking about a gathering of of soldiers. Christ returns. Dead. Dead. Daniel here does not record the battle itself, just the placement of Antichrist in the vicinity in preparation for it. And then it closes with, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. (laughs) The second part of this verse prophesies the fate of the beast. After a relatively brief rise to the height of worldwide power, and really it's, what, three and a half years? That's nothing this man imbued with satanic power will meet an abrupt end. He'll not even be permitted a judicial hearing or a period of imprisonment, as will his master. But we know from the revelation that he will be summarily executed, not into the peaceful sleep of death, but the eternal torment of a living death. Revelation 19.20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And there will be no one to help. And the rest, all in the armies, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Our Father, this is a powerful, troubling scene, but we know who wins And we find joy in that. We thank you for opening your word to us, for giving us your proof, your proof in words that there is indeed hope. You will return. You will take vengeance. You will judge the world. Thank you, our God, for this time and your word.